Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Lisa and Paula are back again. They're two monogamous, vanilla, heterosexual women of color in their 40s. They're successful moms, wives, entrepreneurs. They met during their MBA at UBC. They were super interested to talk more about the results of their struggles with sexual shame. Because in the first session when I had them on, they talked a lot about what was sexual shame like. And there's one question left over from that session that I ask at the beginning of this session. However... We talk mostly about their sexual renaissance, I think, is the best description. It focuses more on Lisa's midlife awakening and Paula talking about burlesque. Ultimately, there was this sense, um, at least for Lisa, from what I understand, that if she didn't start asking for what she wanted in sex and in life, it would just pass her by. They mentioned their experimentation with cannabis edibles, culminating in their high-end cannabis edible Trafel, marketed towards other suburban wives and moms as well. They also mentioned quadrants of arousal. This was a tool I was unfamiliar with. Um, all of these things, by the way, are linked in the resources section, which should show up on Patreon for my premium content subscribers, as well as in the description um, for my free podcast followers at anchor.fm or whatever platform you follow on. Thanks to all of you for supporting the show. And let's get to the session. That is good. a good break. <laughs> that is good. That's good. Time to okay. recharge. Yeah. Mm. Are you noticing the chickadees, Paula? Every once in a while, they like yeah, fly they over. Yeah, they catch my eye. I can't see it. That's okay. Cute. So I will welcome intimates to the conversation. That is what I call all of my followers. They are all intimates. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense with the shows called Intimate Interactions. Yeah. Okay. So we were talking a lot about sexual shame last time. I suppose I should probably intro the two of you as female entrepreneurs. That is what you said. Yes, that is. UBC MBA graduates and moms and wives, monogamous, heterosexual. Is all that still accurate? So far. Um, Yeah, since we last checked. (laughs) Since we last checked. I like it. But we stay open. Mm -hmm. When you say stay open, you mean to change in future. Yeah, Yeah, open-minded, yes. Cool. So before we get into attraction and orgasm, which is the questions that we came up with together for this next one, I wanted to ask one question I forgot to ask last session, which is what did you learn from your mother about sexual shame? And you can throw in grandmother as well if you'd like, because I think it's super interesting to ask those sorts of questions. It was never a topic we ever discussed. So I don't, I don't think it was shame as much as just, yeah, it's just not even a conversation. Like silence. Silence, yeah. My parents were, were hippies. <laughs> and from what I can remember, they'd walk around the house naked and encourage nudity. And we were able to talk about things pretty openly. But I remember um, we'd go to my grandparents' beach house okay. every, every summer. And I remember saying the word bum thinking it was okay to say the word bum and my grandmother and I, I I must have been five and I have never forgotten it I got in so much trouble and I was grounded and sent to the room for the rest of the day wow and I realized around some people it's okay to say things and around others it's okay but I was it's sort of like the little bubble we live in the west coast where mm-hmm. there's a lot more openness than there is in other mm-hmm. countries I realized that in my family I was in a little bit of a bubble and that greater society wasn't quite as open yeah. But around shame, I think I mentioned it in our last podcast that yeah. I was taught that sex is, I wasn't taught the word sex, I was taught the word making love. Right, right. So it's not a recreational activity, it's something you do to show that you love someone. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know, in the Chinese culture we just never thought, uh, talked about it, but we're kind of like 
the, the par- Chinese parents kind of don't want you to have anything to do with boys until you're graduated from university. And then after university, it's like, come on, when are you going to get married? <laughs> <laughs> right. And you're like, I have to have conversations with boys before I get married, mom. <laughs> so it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like two, two very different worlds from not interacting um, publicly at mm-hmm. all to when are you going to have a committed long-term relationship that has all the things you need as a woman to sustain you the rest of your life. Exactly. Yeah, and I think uh, um, as teenagers, the, the notion of, of being sleazy was still very strong. Mm-hmm. So th- again, the, the thought of sex being something that's for pleasure and recreational was still uh, quite oppressed. Mm-hmm. And you would choose a partner carefully and, and it was, uh, you minimized how many people you were with, you didn't have that freedom that that uh, you could just follow your instincts and your desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious to talk more about intimacy in sex because it was a big a big takeaway I think from our last podcast talking about the difference, Lisa, oh, in so your second marriage my, that's versus actually your my third. third marriage. Yes, that's yes. exactly that's the difference. Yes, when intimacy became involved in sex and when sex went from good to amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to ask the open-ended question: Would you be willing to describe intimacy in sex? Yeah, it's it's about vulnerability. I think it's being able to be fully vulnerable and tell him what my most intimate desires are and fantasies are and not having to feel like he's going to shame me or um, make me feel bad about having those thoughts. It was all in my head. had nothing to do with him. Mm -hmm. But when I got over that, that's when we actually were more experimental Mm -hmm. about things and talked about it for sure and I think for me, the biggest takeaway was I thought sex was just sex for men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, exactly. And then when we had this n- new level of intimacy, it got so much better, even for him. Mm-hmm. And he, like I said, he became this bad boyfriend to this amazing lover. I didn't think that was possible, but it was with the next level of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. So I was going to ask what it was like before there was a lot of intimacy, and I feel like we have a lot of detail on your story, Lisa. Paula, did you want to talk about your relationship with intimacy and sex, and if there was like a, a, a pivot point for you where you went from less intimate sex to more intimate sex? Our relationship definitely started very intimate. Our sex mm-hmm. was intimate. We spoke about sex. We had a lot of it. But like Lisa said, a lot of, uh, it was often focused on him and his pleasures. And only recently have we gone back to intimacy, but we, but it left for a long time, and partly because of me, because my mind was elsewhere, and being a pleaser got old, and mm-hmm. I didn't realize that I had things that I need to ask for as well in the bedroom, and it took a long time for me to to rediscover that. Um, and I'll go back to cannabis. The 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 beautiful thing about mm-hmm. cannabis was isn't so much you know, it becoming a habitual thing that I do, mm-hmm. it was more opening those channels mm-hmm. to realizing that there is intimacy, there is sexual desire in me, and then to be able to communicate those. And it opened the channels and it let me find that within myself. Mm-hmm. So now it's easier for me to find it with or without the cannabis. Mm-hmm. The cannabis is still wonderful, but I can find places that I couldn't find for a good 10 to 15 years. Wow, yeah, and that's very similar to what Elisa was saying, that cannabis was really the bridge that helped her broach through shame to find that within herself. And then being able to access that without cannabis afterwards is... Yeah, for me it wasn't as much shame as it was boredom. So we started very intimate and then sex just became a chore. Right. And it was really nice to bring the intimacy back into sex. How did that happen, do you think, that it became a chore? Oh, I, I think it's very common for women, for working women, for stay-at-home moms, for um, women with busy lives. It it's becomes a chore very easily, and as long as you can get the, you know, in a heterosexual relationship at least, get that your your guy pleased and do your, your chore each week that oh, he's yes. been taken care of, then you can continue your life and continue the list of things that you have in your mind that you need to get done. 
So yeah, it's just, just part a, of making your yeah. bed for you. Absolutely, well, yeah. It became we call that for it a maintenance long time. sex for a reason because it maintains the relationship. Right, that it's maintenance. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and I don't find anything wrong with it. I know there's lots of schools of thoughts around it. For us, it really it kept us glued through really difficult times in our marriage mm-hmm. because as unintimate as I felt during those times, there was still there's still a layer of intimacy in there. There's, it's impossible to have sex and not have at least a tiny bit come out. It just wasn't fully in its full wonderfulness that it could be. So how did you start addressing that with your partner? Um, well, you've, I think you've heard me tell the story before, but it was really just, um, I was a good wife. Right. I didn't wander. I, uh, my partner was my everything. And I forgot that men existed altogether, men or women maybe. But, um, and then after doing a little too much cannabis, I, <laughs> I was flirted with and I thought, this is kind of fun. I'm going to see where this goes. And we just flirted back and forth for hours and I had a blast and, I, and that really woke something up in me. Mm-hmm. And they say that a lot about even affairs when someone has that first affair, it really mm-hmm. wakes up something that had been asleep. This woke up a total beast in me. <laughs> and, I, and I brought it home and, and told my husband like every detail and he was in, like he was ex- excited for me and for, uh, for me to try and discover this. Amazing. You, you left with a chore of a sexual experience and you came home with a beast. I came home with a beast. <laughs> she, um, Paula was my biggest guinea pig at the time. So we had an equivalent of... We're talking about cannabis, right? Uh, cannabis, yes, yes, exactly. How we came yeah. up with the aphrodisiac sure. cannabis-infused chocolate truffles yeah. that we have called truffel. Yeah. I, I, but I think right now it's our microdose is anywhere between five to seven milligrams per chocolate. But I think at that time that I, the dosage I nothing. gave her, she probably had equivalent of a whole box. So <laughs> we knew nothing about cannabis. I mean, the last time I tried cannabis was twenty years before, and right. and you just think, oh, it's the size of a brownie. I'll eat the whole thing. Yeah. And of so, course, it depends on how much is in that brownie. Exactly. But we had well, no clue we at had that no time. Clue. We, we were had just no clue. trialing and error, right? That's what we had to go through in order to have this amazing product now that's yeah. so safe and, and so predictable. Did yeah. you did you know that there are lubricants that are infused with THC? Yes, oh, yeah. They're amazing. Oh, yeah. They're amazing. Why do I need to tell you this? Yeah. They're great. Yes, we've done our research. Totally we totally recommend know it. it. Yeah. Although from what I hear, it's important not to give oral sex using most of those lubes because it's actually quite a high concentration for you to get the absorption through the skin. Uh, yeah, better. better. Uh, we would strongly recommend taking like an edible that's yes, the purpose of a specific ingestion. edible, something. Yeah, that's rather than using a lube. Yeah, edibles can make it can, they can make some women drier, so th- some sort of lube right. can be helpful. Uh, yeah, uh, not. It's just one of the, the side effects. Yeah, what we can say about edibles is dosage is so important. And yeah. speak, we can speak to it because we've been trialing it for two years and having, right. yeah. you know. Although apparently a whole box worked with Paula. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Actually, it, that night, no. It was the next day because I still had it in my system. Oh, yeah. wow. That I was still kind of floating and it was finally to a level that was manageable. No, the night that we ate it, no. it was. We don't it was recommend doing a whole box of truffles. <laughs> no, definitely not. Like, if you haven't had any... Because that would be, like, what, 30 to 35 milligrams? Yeah, that's a lot. Like, one... Is it it milligrams or micrograms? Milligrams, yes. One truffel is equivalent to, what, one glass of wine? Yeah. One or two glasses, maybe? And then two would be... Yeah, what we say... Okay, this is an easy way to remember. One truffel will be, like, a giggle fest with your girlfriends. Sure. Or you'll find your partner's jokes funny again. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's intense. That's intense. You will find your partner's jokes funny Especially again. Especially if you've been together for a long time. I'm speaking right. from experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then it takes two. Away your resting bitch face. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Resting bitch face. The two is felt. that is that a thing? Resting bitch oh, face. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Okay. That is yes. The tired mom. Like. Got you. Yeah. Like. Got you. Leave me alone. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. Right. <laughs> Right. I am not into this. I am done. <laughs> I've been potted all day. Let me sleep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but two truffel is what you need to get into the aphrodisiac zone, I think, right? Yeah. Whether it's with a partner or with a solo with a sex toy works great. Yeah. It just makes everything yeah. more intense. We could talk about the orgasms later. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what I'm hearing is it, when it comes to cannabis edibles, dosage is really important. Very, extremely important. Got well, you. especially for new cannabis users. And yeah. edibles is very different than smoking because there's, right. there's about an hour before they take effect. Right, Versus so when don't you have a second brownie because yes. it's not doing anything. Yes. Everyone's seen that movie. Everybody has yes. that problem, yes. Yes, and then, and then for, you know, for most of the women that have tried it, um, try the edibles with us. They're also new users. They're not looking to get wasted. They're not looking to get a right. area. They're just, they're just looking for buzz. something for a gentle yeah. experience. And we personally, we love our wine. So I can't imagine like one Trapan glass of wine is like the perfect <laughs> dosage for us. It's interesting. Yeah, but and they're, they're, it's a good combination. A little bit of wine, can a little yeah, bit of Yeah, but maybe two Trapan, you may want to stay away from the wine. I so yeah, it's, I believe that's called cross fading at that point. <laughs> Um, which so is which is getting high on alcohol and yeah, um, that cannabis could, at the same that time. could be dangerous depending on your tolerance. Interesting, yeah. I mean, any any drug is potentially dangerous, but I, but we're also talking about essentially mm -hmm. microdosing. We're talking about yeah. small amounts. This of is a small dose, so so you know this amount isn't for therapeutic use. It isn't yeah. for pain management. It's I mean, we've had people come and ask us for pain management. We right. say, yeah. no, you you this need strong not. stuff. This yeah. isn't this isn't the product They'll need for the you. Whole box. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the whole <laughs> which is not medical worth it. users. Which yeah. is not worth it. You might yeah. as well get just something. go to a dispensary and get proper yeah. CBD for pain yeah. management. This is, exactly. This, this is just to get the edge off. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So talking about elements to intimacy, I'm super curious to hear you break down what each of you thinks makes up a good intimate partnership. Like what? What would you say are like the categories of things? Mm -hmm. Like vulnerability, we talked about earlier. We mentioned eye contact as mm -hmm. a as a method of establishing it. But I'm curious to hear you sort of fill in some of the details around that. Like, how did you build an intimate marriage other than cannibal edible cannabis <laughs> edibles? Um, well, it's having those conversations that are right. really important, right? Love it. Like respect is having that respect and knowing that somebody is not. You, if you share with them your most vulnerable and uh, desires, they're not going to laugh at you or, or make you feel less than you are for having those thoughts. I think that is, respect is huge in that. And, and to be vulnerable and be loved in the end mm. gives you this, that's what creates a very strong intimacy because you're showing sides that you, you yourself don't trust, you yourself think could be unloved and they're still loved, that creates a very strong sense of intimacy and security. That's a very common thread that we hear at our parties. Yes. Where women share that. Yeah. They have so many fantasies that they don't want to share. But once they do, it's, it's like they've crossed this threshold. Yeah. Yeah, I really resonate with that, um, especially coming out of the, the BDSM and non-monogamy communities. Yes. There are mm -hmm. a lot of people who have these intense fantasies, and they just think they're not possible. Mm, I, yes, I so want to go there. Yeah, that's the next, that's the fifth, fourth marriage. Right, <laughs> it, is, it is on the list of road trips, but you know, yes. you, have to, you have to finish in the city you're in before you get on the road again. Exactly, we've got a long road ahead. It's yeah. almost like there's this process of personal growth mm. and then shoring up all the gains that you've made until exactly. you're really strong where yeah. you are. And yeah. then you just keep going with that personal growth. Mm -hmm. and well, we learn so much along the way yeah. about ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and the growth feels so great and so liberating. Yeah. Just to, to realize that, hey, I, I still woke up the next morning. I'm still a good citizen. I'm still mm -hmm. a responsible parent. I'm still a good wife. I'm still running my company. Mm -hmm. The world didn't fall apart. And yet sex is so much better my intimate relationships are so much yeah. better like mm -hmm. things no only got better. there isn't any no and even even people that you know other women that may look at us funny one day eventually it percolates and they get it and they grow and it's that's been the best thing is seeing, yeah, seeing how women grow. evolve like yeah. sharing sharing our experiences that's very very vulnerable so for us to be here and talking to you from the backgrounds that we come from is extremely vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But we've learned that by ourselves being vulnerable, we open it for other women that are exactly like us, yeah. which are your suburb moms that yeah. don't often talk about these things and all of a sudden they're freed and, and that freedom leads to that intimacy. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it's almost like there's a lot of fear around being vulnerable with those parts of ourselves that we don't trust, as you were saying. And then as soon as you have some of that validated and acknowledged in a partnership, oh, these parts of me can be lovable. I can have these fantasies and not feel ashamed of them. That confidence opens you up to that next level of fantasies that you had that maybe you weren't even acknowledging to yourself. And it becomes less a question of, I can how could I ever do this fantasy and more a question of what fantasy can I create because I want to do more. Yeah, absolutely. And and the other thing to remember is that just because you have a fantasy doesn't mean that it becomes your your thing, your sexual lifestyle. Right. It's just something you try and you may go back to your vanilla sex as your main go-to, but it doesn't mean you can't try other things. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was younger and I, and I had a girl try to kiss me. Mm-hmm. This is from my generation. I thought it meant I was a lesbian automatically right you had right? you had a kiss because I had a kiss no one would think that today but then I thought oh my gosh this like I sat there going does this mean I'm gay like I didn't quite understand what it all meant right just because you want to try something that's outside of the box doesn't turn you into all the things that you feared or that you always questioned about people with alternative sex lifestyles that you 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 may have been judgmental about you can change your mind and become less judgmental be more accepting and it doesn't change who you are the next day. I was going to make an inside the box joke, but I'm so happy you touched on judgmental um, because the judgments we hold over others are the same judgments we often hold over ourselves, Mm -hmm. whether we acknowledge it or not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which is, I think, why so many homophobic, you know, senators Mm. and such come out as gay later. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's nice to be able to rip out of that a little bit and and we all become more open as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's just worth it. Like, it, it's worth it for your quality of life to overcome those judgmental streaks that, you know, you, we all, we don't need to be ashamed of our judgmental streaks. Like, we all learn this crap somewhere. Mm. <laughs> totally, yeah. And it's that journey of... But you of, don't need to become a prisoner to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, unlearning it can be a lifetime endeavor sometimes. It's a practice, right? Yeah. It, that's exactly right. I like yeah. that. It's a practice. Yeah. Um, anything else for intimacy? I mean, we can talk on a higher level, non-sexual level. In, in a long-term relationship, uh, intimacy changes. It evolves. Um, yeah. It's, it's so amazing when I see young couples and the things they fight about. Oh, my <laughs> God. Isn't it funny? And we just are like, I remember when I used to argue about those things. Now I don't even listen to them. It just kind of goes over my head, and I keep doing what I do. <laughs> Yeah. So th- those those are that's a set type of intimacy that maybe in some relationships can be misunderstood for lack of closeness or for falling apart or mm-hmm, for for mm-hmm. growing in different directions. But sometimes it's just you've just evolved, yeah. and yeah. it's not the same thing anymore. Yeah, definitely having the courage to kind of talk about anything. That's intimacy mm-hmm. for me. That's the difference mm-hmm. between my second and third marriage. Is is not even having any fear to talk about that thing it doesn't have to be sex it's anything Mm -hmm. and not feeling judged yeah yeah which touches back on the other piece about when we do the work on our own judgments it becomes a lot easier to be freer Mm -hmm. in our expressions of sex and fantasy yeah i think so Let's talk about feeling sexy. I'm interested in talking about how feeling attractive or beautiful or sexy mm. plays into arousal and and bridging shame. Okay, wow. I see some smiles. I see some really big <laughs> smiles. I'm just thinking about my awakening, like the the when I turned 40 and what that journey was like for me. Yeah. It actually started really innocently just dancing Zumba. Okay. Because, you know, you move in a way, salsa, move in a way that's more sexual than just a normal aerobics uh, dance. So that was that was kind of what started it for me. And then I started exploring and I did a boudoir shoot mm-hmm. for my 40th birthday. That was my gift to, I don't know whether it's to myself or to my husband. I ended up giving him the album, but I think it was really for myself, is being able to where uh, you know take these really sexy photos uh, professional photos uh, and feeling comfortable in front of the camera Mm -hmm. and having it in an album that was so liberating Mm -hmm. it's so out there for you yeah so out there for me 
and then and then that's and then we, I started experimenting with Trafal, and you know the story for that. But it's constant. That I think that uh, discovering and liberating our sexuality is a constant thing. I'm, I'm, we're going to be doing that right up until we're forever in the old yeah forever old age home because we're doing yeah. Luminous now, which is a burlesque heels uh, course dance course, and we're going to be performing in a show this weekend. So. Um, I think it, it's a never-ending journey. I think one of the most interesting things that I experienced through, through one of our events was um, watching women dance. We had, we had a, a Trafel event, and it was a sleepover, and we had a therapist, we had a few workshops, and then in the evening, it was just about dancing freely, and it was just women. Um, most heterosexual, there may be some bi, or, mm -hmm. um, but it was just women. and. Everyone started dancing so erotic and so sexy on a chair. They take turns, I don't, and it was super organic. It just happened, and it wasn't a show for anybody but for themselves. You could mm. see that they just went inside. They they were kind of in their own trance, and they were just being sexy, dancing for themselves. And the rest of the women were just cheering on, and then someone else would take a turn. It was incredible to see because it wasn't a show for a guy. It wasn't a show to hook up with someone. It wasn't a show about going and having sex later. It was all about feeling sexy for yourself and self-love. It, yeah. was, it was, and it was extremely organic, which was the beauty of it. So it came from the heart. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, I think that's why burlesque holds so much healing because you do get that opportunity to be empowered and take control of what it looks like to perform arousal almost or to perform, um, I don't know what you would call it, like a demonstration of how sexy you are. With, without there being any danger. So if for, for us, you know, when we were in our nightclub days, yeah. if we went to a nightclub and danced like that, you were putting yourself in, in, in a position where you're saying, I want someone to come and basically screw me tonight like that's would be what the impression would be by everyone there you weren't free to dance your sexuality and this was a way to and burlesque is too a way to really dance your sexuality and it's not for anyone it's just it's not because you're looking for someone it's just for you mm -hmm. and that freedom is so hard to find for women to just be able to dance and express sexuality without it being about sex mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. lots to think about Oh, so since we're talking about arousal and orgasm and fantasy, I'm curious to talk about how shame relates to fantasy and fetish. Do you think being seen as a woman who has fantasies or fetishes is shameful? Huge smiles again. Well, I just think of how we've evolved. Yeah. <laughs> really. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I think we've come a long way. And if you asked me that question 10 years ago, I would almost be dumb. I wouldn't even know what you're talking about, to be honest. Wow. Yeah, I just wouldn't get it. So I get it now. Um, I get how vulnerable it can be and how scary it can be. But of course, our judgment is is not there. And I mean, I can't say it's not there. It's like saying you don't see race, as we were talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. Of course, there's judgment, but you're more cognizant of it. Right. And you're not so naively accepting to be judgmental you mm -hmm. you take a little bit of responsibility on it so that's really changed mm -hmm. yeah the question. <laughs> no no you're, you're doing great uh, the question was um, do you think society sees fetishes or fantasies as shameful oh, oh society definitely does yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, our events, half the people don't want to, that yeah. we know don't want to come because they so think we're having orgies. Yeah, <laughs> or they just don't want to come and talk about sex. That too. It's yeah. it's very scary to talk about sex. We have it's some really early adopters that have yeah. been uh, our biggest advocates. They're, they're amazing women, and they, they're, um, they're leaders in their, own, in their own ways, and they'll be, they'll be other, you know, they'll help other women that still aren't ready, but they will yeah. be. I mean, many will be. So that's the biggest hurdle to get women to come out and actually talk about sex. Yeah. And be vulnerable. And uh, yeah. You're taught sex stays in the bedroom, right? Right. It's, and it's intimate and it's only between you and your partner. You don't go sharing it. And like you said, there's risk involved. 
Yeah. There's risk to your reputation. There's risk of what people might think of you, what people might tell other people, or what scripts you might be playing into, like you said, with a nightclub. Mm-hmm. If you go to a social event and you start talking about sex, people might think you want to have an affair. They might give you some very undesirable attention. Like, there's a lot of risk that comes with talking about For sex. For sure, women. yeah. But yet, when we do talk about it, <laughs> there's wow. There's a reward. <laughs> oh, I, got the, I love that story that we, we were at the uh, cannabis trade show. And there was a woman from Health Canada. We wanted to ask her questions about the whole process of the legalization that was coming up. Right. She was tall, wide-shouldered, really serious, like government worker, mm-hmm. who giving us like, you know, the book answers. And then Lisa, <laughs> Lisa told her what we're creating. She said we're creating aphrodisiac chocolates. Do you want to try some? And all of a sudden, she turned into this giggling little girl. <laughs> <laughs> she was so giddy and excited, and, yeah. and she just became our best friend all yeah. of a sudden. Like it just, all the walls come down th- when when right. when you open, and then the person. I think so. People are afraid to go there, but once you bring them there, wow, is it liberating? Yeah, yeah. that safe place. You, someone brings it up, like this average normal woman brings it up. And you're like, oh, if she can talk about it I can talk about it yeah yeah it's really breaking down the stigma around sex it is awesome so hmm how do you feel about the media and the way that it tends to portray sex I, I specifically want to talk about fetishizing something other than the Hollywood archetype of attractiveness how do we break down that narrative of what a quote unquote hot woman is Burlesque is a great way. The women that we're dancing with, the every 200 women that are performing in the show. Every age, every size. Every age, every size. And uh, they're all beautiful in their own way. Yeah. And it's because of the confidence that's instilled in them through burlesque yeah. that makes them beautiful. They, they believe they are. One, um, yeah. And one of the uh, therapists that we had a workshop with not long ago said something that was really eye-opening to me when you talk about the stereotypes of what is considered beautiful in the media mm-hmm. and she said yeah and a woman that does not fit that stereotype is considered a fetish in our right. greater society instead of just being attracted to her and that really struck me because it is there's so much truth to that um, of of that media ideal mm-hmm. and someone loving anything outside of it they must have a thing for I don't know, larger women or or for a specific ethnic group or whatever or older women whatever it may be yeah. when you don't fit the norm all of a sudden you're a fetish yeah the whole like fetishization of race is really racist and shitty <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fan of that it is fine to find lots of different kinds of, of humans beautiful but the second people start saying shit like oh I'm only into blank you know mm-hmm. like I'm only into this race of people it's like uh, it's just like Maybe you should take some time to unpack all the assumptions behind why you think that that's so wrong or why you think that that's so, you know, to use a racialized word, quote unquote, spicy. Mm. Um, There's so many of these like, yeah, quote unquote, fevers that people apparently have. And I'm pretty done with it. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's beauty in everyone. Totally. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but it it doesn't it. You, you like who you like. It doesn't mean it's a fetish, whatever a fetish is. I actually don't sure. really know what defines a fetish. Mm-hmm. She's uh, off the top of my head. I think that the, the definition is a fetish specifically is, is when sex or arousal requires um, an inanimate object of some kind. Like if some people are aroused by PVC or people are aroused by leather. I think those are technically fetishes. A lot of what we talk about when we talk about fetishes are more appropriately called kinks, and in some cases, paraphilias. To like the when, best. It's a, when it's related to a human being? Yeah, but I need to look it up, because to be honest, I'm not staring. You know what, I'll tell you what. You know if, what, it doesn't even matter. The point sure, is sure. that, that uh, it just is someone liking someone. Yeah, and a story like someone. Why label it because it's not fitting the the media norm? Yeah, exactly. If you don't fit within that norm, then you're considered a fetish or a kink or or whatever the term may be. Whatever the term is. Okay, so I looked up the definition just so that I'm not, you know, talking um, without any kind of reasonable research behind it. So fetish can mean a whole bunch of things, apparently. But other than talking about objects that have magical or spiritual powers, um, we're using it to specifically talk about um, uh, 
Okay, wow, dictionary, the free dictionary.com is not giving me great stuff. It's talking about an object of unreasonable, excessive attention or reverence, i.e. to make a fetish of punctuality. It's talking about something such as a material object or non-sexual part of the body that arouses sexual desire and may become necessary for sexual gratification. And it talks about abnormal, obsessive preoccupations or attachments or fixations. So there's a lot of, like, metaphoric usages of the word fetish, if if they're even that for the for the lame person i think when someone talks about a fetish or kink it's sometimes assumed that it's something not normal yeah not mainstream for sure it's not normal that there's something wrong with the person right and that's that's why it's like why why not just like what you like I kind of love that it stresses that it's a material object or non-sexual part of the body that arouses sexual desire because that really means that people who like breasts have a fetish for breasts, right? right? Because breasts are not inherently involved in sex. I mean, they are in the same way that necks and elbows and knees right, they're sensual. Can, be, can be erogenous, mm-hmm. but they aren't genitals. Right. So they're not sexual in that sense. So in the strictest definition of the word fetish, you could say that our society has a nudity fetish and that our society tends to have a breast fetish and that those fetishes sure. are mainstream. But that's if you want to be super strict prescriptivist about yeah. use of the word. Yeah. But I've typically said that our society has a nudity fetish. Like, it's kind of weird that, like, like someone who's naked and ready for sex, yeah, I can see why that would be sexually arousing. Someone doing their laundry naked is not inherently <laughs> sexual. Unless you, unless you really, really like people doing laundry. Because, let's be honest, I think if you've been in a marriage and you've maintained a household with kids, there is something sexy about a man doing dishes or doing laundry. <laughs> I mean, like, how many husbands have been shot while doing dishes or laundry? Yeah, they don't get in trouble for that. I feel like I feel like people would wait until the chore was done. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like I feel like it's it's more than just life insurance. And I'm making I'm making a joke of it, but I know. Kink definitions. I'll see if I can find one. Wikipedia, of course, gives an enormous definition. But it says kinkiness is the use of unconventional sexual practices, concepts, or fantasies. I like the word unconventional. Unconventional. Yeah. That's exactly it. And I think that's why kink There's tends less to be judgment the, yeah. when you talk about unconventional. Kink tends to be the broader umbrella that tends to encompass fetishes, BDSM, and other unconventional sexual practices. Oh. I mean, theoretically, people could call non-monogamy a kink. Totally. But, I mean, it is highly conventional in some parts of the world. It's just... In fact, even in our part of the world, really, we just tend to do serial monogamy, and we tend to do quote-unquote dating whatever that means, but it's not exactly monogamous in a lot of cases. Well, we have more than one partner. Yeah. In our lifetime, I mean. That's true. Absolutely. Which, which again, in the strictest prescriptivist definition is not monogamous. Mm-hmm. And that's from Esther Perel, not from me. <laughs> <laughs> Esther Perel, which, um, what, where do I know the name from? Cause she's, she's like the modern day Dr. Ruth. Right, she right. Did, um, but she did the book, uh, State of Affairs. State we, of did affairs. A, we did a book club on that. So great. Great book. So this definition of paraphilia is, is, to my knowledge, not correct, but it's what um, Wordnick is giving me, which is any of a group of psychosexual disorders characterized by sexual fantasies, feelings, or activities involving a non-human object, a non-consenting partner, such as a child, or involving pain or humiliation of oneself or one's partner. Um, that's a paraphilic disorder, to my knowledge. As of the DSM-5, um, masochism and sadism are not paraphilic disorders, though they are paraphilias. Mm. Is paraphilia in the DSM? Yes. It is. Um, it's in the DSM, but not as like, this is a thing that you need to diagnose and treat. Mm-hmm. So typically, paraphilic disorder is used in the sense of a crime has happened, whereas paraphilia isn't. The exact quote that I got off a blog about paraphilias and how they differ from disorders is, quote, a paraphilia is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for having a paraphilic disorder, and a paraphilia by itself does not necessarily justify or require clinical intervention, and that's from The Atlantic. Cool. 
So yeah, these are highly academic terms. That's what yes. I was going to say. That's pretty academic. Yeah. And they're they're behind paywalls. Like a lot of this information is behind paywalls. And like I would literally have to go to a university library and pull their copy of the DSM-5 to be able to find a definition for paraphilic disorders because Google can't find one for me online right now. <laughs> so maybe I'm just bad at research, but I don't expect someone without a degree, because I have a degree, would have an easier time finding this. Mm -hmm. So like it's it's so difficult to even have these conversations because there are so many things standing in the way of understanding yes. the material. Yeah. But the TLDR is it used to be thought that if you were a sadist or a masochist or had some of these fetishes that you were inherently criminal, that you needed to be treated. And there was a lot of stigma and a lot of abuse by doctors and clinicians mm -hmm. um, surrounding kinksters in the community. And as the DSM-5 came out and sort of said, oh, hey, these people don't actually need to be treated necessarily, essentially it just confused the legal and medical communities completely. They have no idea how to make the distinction. And part of my goal as an educator is to help make that easier for them and to give them the training they need to distinguish kink yeah. from abuse. Well, that's good. Well, I am being paid by the BCCDC to write for them right now to help them that's make an article to amazing. make that distinction. It is amazing. I can't believe they were as progressive as they were to reach out and try and do this. Yeah. That's amazing. I've heard of educators in the San Francisco area trying to produce content to do the same thing, but I've never heard of them working directly with a Center for Disease Control or other healthcare institution. So I think we have something really awesome here, and I'm, and they may have. I just don't know of it. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully we continue to build a freedom from stigma because I think it would help to get back on topic, unlock a lot of people's fantasies and reduce their stigma around it and help them get back to a place of arousal and freedom. Totally. Yeah. Well, because without the official definition these terms have carry a heavy load in general society which is not necessarily positive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we were talking about finding ourselves attractive and how important that can be for sexy times and just that sort of arousal and energy that you bring to sex in wanting to have sex and wanting to be there and wanting to pursue interaction with someone how do you find yourselves attractive now, and how have the narratives in your head around how attractive you are changed? Well, just the simple fact that we are having amazing sex right now, that really helps me feel attractive. So I think it goes hand in hand. If you feel attractive, you feel good about yourself, then it's possible to have really good sex. And versus, you know, if I, the other way too, it does. If you start having really good sex you could help yourself feel attractive mm -hmm. so it's just the, i think the problem is people don't make that conscious awareness to actually even have decent sex other than yeah yeah, yeah. and it's it starts by, by loving yourself yeah if you love yourself you find yourself attractive in so many levels not just the physical level but you just find yourself a beautiful human being and 40s is great because that's I mean, you, you, so much of the baggage is, is left behind once you hit mm -hmm. that fourth decade. And it's so easy for women to love themselves. We actually go through a physiological change right through into our 50s where we are euphoric and we are our best selves. Mm -hmm. So it's, it doesn't matter that we're older and we don't have a, a, a newly blossomed body. We love ourselves so much that we feel attractive. Yeah, I love that. Technically, it's the fifth decade. I hope so. Ready for more. <laughs> Amp it up. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to see beautiful young women in their 20s be insecure about how gorgeous they are. I just, I, right. I, I, you know, I wish, I wish they had the wisdom that we've got to be able to just get over it because they're stunning and sure they've got a beautiful inside, but their outside and their insecurities of their beautiful outsides won't even let them begin loving their insides mm -hmm. yeah totally I wish I had half the wisdom that I have now when I was in my 20s yeah I know yeah and there's also that notion of again that one true model of how things should be quote-unquote hot or attractive mm -hmm. and when I think when I was in my 20s anyway I definitely saw that as you have to be in your 20s to be attractive and then as soon as you're not in your 20s anymore you're like oh people still find me really attractive they still really want to have sex with me what is this and it just starts making you question all yeah. of those assumptions about beauty yeah. and sexuality there's no doubt that youthfulness is so beautiful there's so much innocence it's it's 
there's so much prettiness about it that but that's not it it's much it's it's so much bigger than yeah. that because you can be a supermodel and be so insecure that you're not going to feel attractive you're not going to feel mm -hmm. sexual you're not going to be your best self so mm -hmm. it's not about how gorgeous you are or how young you are it's it's a bigger package than that yeah, yeah. victor yeah. how is it turning 30 for you how is it turning 30 interesting question how is it turning 30? Like the date, your birthday, the date, the day you turn 30. So I started preparing, uh, typical for a person with anxiety, I started thinking about myself as 30 when I was 29 and a half, so <laughs> that when it got to be too much, I'd be like, yeah, but I'm 29 right now. Um, and then that kind of was like a <laughs> vaccination for turning 30. So I had like six months to think about being 30 and sort of realize like, yeah, I'm entering a new decade and like, what's that going to look like? And like, how am I going to characterize my life as different? And how am I going to make this decade better than the last one? And uh, yeah, so far it's been better. I've been mm -hmm. less depressed, a little more anxious than in my mm -hmm. 20s, but less depressed and a little more cognizant of the anxiety I do have. So mm -hmm. I'm starting to address more they things. They say 30s can be challenging because you're trying to build it. Like this is, what am I gonna be? What, right. what do I have to show for, for right. everything I've done? And so there's this amazing pressure. Mm -hmm. But then when you hit 40s, you kind of accept what you are. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. okay, this is my empire. This is my life, this yeah. is my, whether it's superficial material things or your family yeah. or friends or yeah. or children if you have any like you are so accepting of where you've ended up but the yeah. 30s is like the pressure's on yeah. you've got that decade to build it so you there's a lot of anxiety for that is exactly know. how i feel yeah it's very much that intense like okay but what am i doing in terms of a career because it's mm -hmm. one thing to get by paycheck to paycheck but like what am i doing in terms of a career and like how can i ensure some kind of lasting financial security how can i build that that relief from tension when I'm in my 50s and 60s and 70s like how can I produce that now yeah yeah, yeah totally I, I think that was the biggest difference for me when I turned 30 it's like the worst day of my life I was crying literally the day I turned 30 and I was in one of the most beautiful places in the world I was in a castle in Burgundy wow. France and I remember it was raining and I was bowling because I was so sad turning 30 but when I turned 40, it was like the best day of my life. We that had was this a great, great party. big <gasps> travel party. Oh my, oh my God. It was, it was an amazing we, party. All was, the bells and whistles. It was whistles. like a grown up's birthday, a little children's birthday party full of activities. <laughs> <laughs> stations with stations. stations. You had stations at your party? Yes. Uh, yes, we had so many things to do. It was like a 10 hour party. Oh, sleepover. Actually, it was a sleepover, wasn't it? So it was more like a 20, 20 hour party. And it was, we were just constantly. Uh, that's a lot of party. It was a lot of fun, so much fun. But that's the difference, 30 and 40. What a big relief being 40. I'm really looking forward to turning 50. I, I really like this decade. <laughs> you let me know, because you're going to get there before me. <laughs> I'll let you know. Still though, peaking when you're 48 is a really beautiful place to peak. Yeah, yeah, it is good. But I did the same thing as you. When I turned 40, I told myself, I, and I told everyone I turned 45. Oh, because interesting. Because 45 felt so old to me. I'm like, obviously, it's a joke. Like, of course I'm not 45. <laughs> and I'll be ready for it when it happens. So yeah. I was 45 for five years. Yeah, well, and positioning <laughs> yourself like that, I find, is a really good way to, like, manage the anxiety and start breaking down the stigma years early. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're preparing yourself. You're like, this is scary to me. It's so your own I'm mind gonna... game. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now I'm just thinking about myself as 35. I'm like, well, I'm halfway to 70. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but really the, the um, age seems to be mattering less and less. Yeah. Unlike you, 40 was a big number for me. You know what? Orgasms get better. As really? you get older, oh my God, it does. So much. Because you're you not so here anymore. You're not yeah. in your head. Right, right. You're, you can actually be it, in the present and enjoy it because you've got less hang-ups. I think it's because also, for me, I don't settle right. for mediocre anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I th it was just a couple, maybe even just a year ago, a couple years ago, I, there's this one time um, my husband and I had sex and I didn't have an orgasm. And then I declared to him, this is the last time we're having sex without me having an orgasm. And he, he says, sure, no problem. <laughs> and then it just went up from there, like even up, more up. Tell the story of um, how you and Dave are planning, how, you, how you're realistic that for a marriage to last forever is, is uh, 
Well, that it's not a realistic expectation. Well, for us, we've been together for 26 years. Are we going to be together for another, another 26. 26 years? How realistic is that? Like, truthfully, a lot of my friends are just counting the years that their kids are out of school so they wow. could to have a divorce. Different generation. Got you. <laughs> yes, and that's so sad for, for me to think of it that way. And But, you know, we are realistic, too. So we had a conversation and said, you know, what's the next 10, 20 years going to be for us? What's it going to look like? And we're very realistic in terms of it may end in 10 years. But we're going to make these next 10 years the best 10 years of our life. So we'll live every moment. We'll go on all the vacations, spend all that money that we built together. (laughs) And just have a really, really good time and enjoy the times with the kids. And when they're graduated, we may or may not choose to stay together, but but that's okay. We don't have to have that expectation that we're going to be together forever. And Mm -hmm. that takes off that... Um, I don't know, that expectation for each other to be in a certain way. Yeah. But, and I, but I, talk about preparing him to be but a good yes, lover. Yes, yeah, so we're preparing. Yeah, I told him to think of it the way that, well, we, both of us are. We're doing so much self-development now, uh, mentally and sexually, that we are going to be the best lover for each other and for the next lover. Wow. So do you find that you and your partner have already kind of come to a place of acceptance that like at some point you won't be together anymore? Well, we're just very pragmatic about it. It's it's, cool. the, it's a numbers game. Who stays together for 50 years in our generation anymore? I mean, so people do. People do. People do. I'm hearing it's less desired. It, it is less desired. He was my first. Got you. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminas, Stolo, Tsawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sikwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.